Hi, welcome to Morning Talk Show. Again, filming an intro in my yard, so you're going to hear some birds and sirens and that kind of thing. Uh, but uh, today is my conversation with Becca Tarnas. Becca is uh, a practitioner, teacher, and uh, philosopher, writer in the world of um, archetypal or archetypal, archetypal astrology. Uh, so as we get into in the interview, astrology is something that has always interested me because uh, rather than seeing the human reflected, you know, internally and, and sort of looking at ourselves by, by sort of digging down, astrology is like seeing ourselves reflected in the sort of most macro sense possible. And I had a personal experience with astrology that really had an impact on me and really made me want to talk to someone with expertise in this field. So Becca was awesome. Uh, she's written a book on, on J.R.R. Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings. And uh, so she, her father, uh, Richard Tarnas, is a, a leading light in, in this world uh, of archetypal astrology. And so it was really interesting to talk to someone who has been steeped in this tradition um, rather than someone who came to it later in life, which I think is more the type of person I've spoken to before. That said, um, Becca is very well researched. She is always researching. And so, um, you know, she's not dogmatic about it. I found this to be a really interesting conversation with lots of wisdom uh, just that could be applicable to daily life. So I hope you enjoy the interview. Please like and subscribe, hit the bell, and you can be notified about future episodes. Thanks a lot. Becca Tarnas, welcome to Morning Talk Show. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I, I always start out by sort of saying uh, why I was um, interested in in speaking to someone usually it's like uh it's like a feeling of uh almost like a need to speak to someone uh and um in, in this case it's because kind of in my ongoing attempt to understand myself and other people um i keep opening up and opening up to um other ideas and i went on to facebook one day and just said uh just kind of to stir the pot a little bit i said to people you know what i'm not uh i'm not opposed to astrology you know i'm not opposed to astrology i i just kind of had this realization where i was like there's something in astrology that that uh, i can't i can't fully discount so then i got the usual um you know uh some people saying great some people saying well actually you know astrology has been entirely entirely disproven and all of that. But one of the things I did get was uh, a friend sent um, a page from a book. She said, what's your what's your birthday and um, and things. She sent me a page from a book that was a description of me based on when I was born in history. And, uh, you know, I don't know. You know, I, I, I never want to say anything is like, oh, this is proof. But I, I, I both wept and laughed as I was reading it because it was so unbelievably um affirming to to who i was what i'd sensed about myself my strengths and my weaknesses and like you don't know me at all but for me to weep and laugh while reading something 
could not be more out of character. There's something about the act of reading that is, it, it just doesn't, I don't know, it's, it's difficult for me to enter into a seriously emotional space while reading written words on a page. So that was like, boom, whoa. So um, I, I, I'm, I looked, I looked around online. I, I was like, I want to talk to someone about this, um, this phenomena. And obviously there's a lot, a lot online. And then I found yourself and archetypal, um, archetypal mm-hmm. astrology. And, uh, then I saw that you'd written about Tolkien, um, and, and that kind of thing. And I was like, okay, this is, this is a person that, that I feel like could, I could speak to and could speak to me. And I would, I would be able to listen and hear because, and I'm sorry, this is so much biographical information before you really <laughs> said a word. Um, but uh, I'm setting the stage a little bit. And so, uh, another element of my life was being raised extremely conservative Christian, but with a dad who was very drawn towards fairy stories and, um, huge into Tolkien, C.S. Lewis and, and, um, George MacDonald and that kind of thing. And so that was a part of my history as well. So I just kind of felt like there would be some, some common ground there. Um, and I guess, first of all, uh, does my story sound familiar to you? Is this the kind of thing you've heard many times? How do people usually approach you about astrology? <laughs> I definitely get a wide range of uh, people approaching astrology in terms of, you know, did they just discover it or was it introduced to them by someone that they thought was very normal and straight edged and then they mention something about astrology and their viewpoint of that person is totally turned over. Some people discover it in, in childhood or in their teens, very wide range. And as an astrologer, I work through different circles where, you know, people are generally more open to it. Um, Although I've definitely had my share of encountering the, the hardened skeptic as well. Hmm. And you know, when it comes to this idea of proving astrology, it's looking at uh, an ancient tradition with multiple lineages. Basically, every ancient culture has a different relationship to the sky, that there's some kind of understanding that the, the stars, the movements of the planets are communicating something deeper about the world. We see the Western astrological tradition comes out of um, Babylon and Egypt. There are astrologies that come out of China. um, There's Mayan astrology. Of course, there's the whole Vedic astrological tradition coming out of India. There's such a diversity of reading the language of the stars, astrologos, that's what it means. But we live in a time when within the the western scientific tradition slowly that connection to uh to the stars as having a deeper inherent meaning has been eroded and so when when individuals look at uh, proving astrology to be real or not to be real it's in a very specific framework Mm. it's a scientific worldview and when we look at scientific worldviews, we have to recognize that there have been many shifting paradigms, even within science. 
So what was um, believed to be absolutely true within one scientific paradigm gets overturned by the next. I mean, the clearest, which in many ways gave birth to the scientific revolution is the Copernican revolution, the recognition that uh, the earth is not at the center of the cosmos, rather the, the planets are uh, orbiting the, the sun. Uh, there's another paradigm shift when gravity is introduced. There's another total paradigm shift when Einstein brings in relativity or the whole team of scientists who made the, the quantum breakthrough uh, in quantum theory and quantum physics. Mm. That overturned a paradigm as well. And so it's to say that something like astrology has been um, proven or disproven by uh, individuals who have not actually learned the techniques using their own scientific method of empirical observation, hmm. I, I question whether they're really saying it's, it's been proven or disproven. There's actually mm -hmm. um, studies that have been done st using complex statistical models that are in fact bringing about very significant evidence to uh, the astrological perspective. But mm. because it's such a controversial topic, most scientists won't even pick up those, you know, 70 plus studies. Right. Um, so anyway, that's, that's a kind of uh, roundabout way of saying that everyone comes to astrology by a different path. Mm -hmm. And what is really beautiful about astrology is that it has this capacity to reflect us to ourselves. And I think that's what you were experiencing in that moment when you were reading that page, that description where, you know, that's not even a one-on-one -on -one astrology session where someone is directly reading your chart to you. It's, um, it's a write-up of what is, you know, a part of your natal chart. And when we feel that touched, that moved, I think the emotional response comes from the fact that astrology demonstrates we're being witnessed by the cosmos in hmm. every moment of our lives in the breakthroughs in the uh the tragedies in the failures each one of those moments is correlated with a particular transit or with a particular part of our natal chart and hmm. there's something that feels so profound and deeply moving when we experience that level of witnessing and if we've never been witnessed in that way let's say we were raised in a disenchanted cosmos where hmm. our understanding of you know the planets is just simply um, bodies moving through space there's no deeper intelligence to the cosmos or sense of care or even love hmm. uh, that we could feel there it, that shatters our worldview hmm. and so it's very threatening um yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's really interesting. Um, and yeah, I think you're, you're spot on about that. It's just feeling witnessed, like, uh, coming up through a different tradition, uh, um, religious tradition and feeling kind of, uh, feeling like what was written in that birth chart, that kind of anonymously written, uh, chart or, or description actually nailed who I was more than a bunch of people who had literally been witnessing me as a person. And, and so, yeah, there is something about being, uh, feeling seen. I did feel seen in, in an interesting way because I knew that I wasn't literally 
like the book wasn't magic the words on the page weren't magic but there's something about that interface or like i don't know if interface that's not a good word like there's something about um it the con the confirmational nature of what i was reading um that almost can, yeah it seemed to almost bring another uh, presence into the room i'm kind of reframing based on the way that you you just described it and and i hadn't really thought of it that way but i did feel seen and and it feel and it felt like you can see why uh some people hang on to things that um you know that others might tell them aren't aren't uh, aren't correct because it's like if you've had that experience and you haven't had it much in other areas it's 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 very you're not going to give that up easily right because it you know it's what we want in a way more than more than anything and and the the another question that kind of came up as you were speaking in my mind was that um the um, how should I put it? Uh, the, the astrology, astrology is, it seems like kind of a, an intuitive, um, realm in a way, like a realm where the intuition is, is kind of key because yeah, you're not going to have, um, you're not going to do a blind study and find necessarily that like under laboratory conditions that it's proven. I mean, you're saying there are studies and I'd be very interested to see them because I, you know, my intuition is that there is something going on. Um, but, um, I wonder if you feel like maybe intuition in general, um, is, is kind of on the decline or is, or has declined and is now needing to, uh, have a renaissance or a rebirth. Is that, is that something that makes any sense to you? It does make a lot of sense. And I see astrology as a tool to hone one's intuition. Because when we practice astrology, you know, the more familiar that one gets with the way the, the archetypal principles that are associated with the planets, the way they combine when we meet someone, maybe we're just starting to get to know somebody, and then we can have this sense of a little bit of their personality and can hazard a guess of maybe an aspect hmm. they might have. And in making that guess, we can then pull up their chart and look and see, well, do they have that aspect hmm. that I was intuiting, that I was perceiving in them? And if we're right, well, now we've just affirmed that feeling of intuition. So the next time it comes up, we can trust it a little more. Oh, I think hmm. that um, that person maybe has this particular aspect. You look, if it's correct again, now you've affirmed it even more. And we have very few tools, practices in our culture that actually hone and develop and affirm intuition. Mm -hmm. And astrology is one of those because you can see the correlations and you get corrected when you're wrong too. We might make an assumption, oh, this person has that aspect and realize we're completely projecting. And right. so that's important as well right. when we realize we're wrong and we have to reassess that mm. because then our intuition gets further honed in this uh, kind of corrective process. So there is an intuitive element of astrology to be sure, but there's also an empirical one. 
And that is, you know, the comparison of many, many birth charts or the comparison of the charts of many, many events or periods in history to see, well, what are the repeating patterns? What are the things that we see again and again? And what are the things that evolve or change or are different through time? And mm. being able to look in that empirical manner can also really help us to uh, have a deep grounding in the astrological principles and to be able to see how something will, will manifest when we come across a, you know, a chart that we've never encountered before. So it sounds like there's quite a bit of kind of uh, endless research that you can do into it, especially when you're involved. So you, you actually do counseling with people astrological counseling, um, what kind of, how much time do you, do you spend on that and versus how much time do you spend on doing, uh, like research and trying to sort of increase your, your overall understanding of, uh, astrological history and, and movements? At this phase in my life, I'm spending a lot of time doing uh, the counseling work, doing, giving readings is what we call it. Mm -hmm. And that in itself though, is its own form of research because every right. reading that I give, I'm of course speaking to the client and illuminating their chart, but then maybe I'm describing their moon Neptune aspect and moon Neptune can be a very uh, sensitive, very permeable aspect. If one is born with this, we can be very emotionally permeable. If we have this aspect, there's a and an intuitive capacity, one can just walk into a room and feel what's happened there, for example, without being mm. told. Um, there can be a tremendous sensitivity with Moon Neptune, not only to others' emotions, because it feels like there's no boundaries between us. Mm. We have an emotion, uh, a Moon Neptune aspect. And um, there can be sensitivity not only to other people's feelings, emotions, but also to... Um, you know, things in the environment, food sensitivities or loud mm. noises or chemicals or cold drafts. And mm. um, what can happen, you know, I'll, I'll be describing this to someone. And if this feels like it fits with their life experience, then they'll speak to that, but then they'll also tell me more about their life. And that fills out the picture a little more for me of other ways the moon Neptune might come through mm. or other ways that they work with it. And that's an important part of the counseling piece, right. not just describing, but also, well, how do you work with, you know, if you are very emotionally sensitive and permeable, mm. how do you protect yourself? How do you buffer yourself? And, right. um, and so I will, you know, collect certain practices that relate to specific aspects. Like if you have moon Neptune, it can be really helpful to have your home feel like a womb-like sanctuary, to have soft blankets and hot tea and warm baths and things that buffer you. Yeah. And so I'll hear reflected from a client that, you know, maybe it's an afternoon nap that helps them feel buffered in that way, or maybe mm. it's having soft lighting. And so then I'll take that in. And then the next moon Neptune person I happen to encounter share that and be like, oh yeah, I actually do that already. Mm. And so it's yeah. this constant learning process in the counseling session itself. And okay. so every single one of my readings, I feel builds on the next. And there's always these beautiful synchronicities where someone will be going through something and then someone I'm meeting later that day or later that week, that's exactly the thing they needed to hear because they have the same aspect. Mm. Um, 
So that's kind of the, the core of what I've been doing, but I am a professor and I am uh, a researcher. I co-edit a journal called yeah. Archi. Um, right. It's the Journal of Archetypal Cosmology. And so yeah. for that, I do more academic research into um, different planetary alignments, periods in history, whether that's writing about it or teaching it. One of my particular passions is studying music in relationship to astrology. So looking at the charts and the transits of different musicians. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, uh, <laughs> I, that, that resonates with me. Oh, I left my cape on. I shouldn't do that. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but, uh, oh, that sounds very interesting. And yeah, I, I guess, I guess that it, it, to me, there's, you know, there's, there's that music of the spheres, mm-hmm. uh, concept of, of kind of harmony in, harmony and manifesting in reality in so many different uh, ways at so many different levels, including this massive macro level that uh, of the, of the planets all the way down to interpersonal uh, relationships or even thought thought patterns in our own minds. And, and I, and I feel like that's one of those things that points people towards uh, towards these kinds of things, like a musician who has experienced the sort of magical quality of, of harmony and dissonance between notes and, and, and space and, and melody, like for me, melody is this um, this completely magical thing. I mean, there there is just you know, like I write melodies, and sorry, this is this is very tangential. But you mentioned music, uh, you know, I write melodies, and you just know sometimes like this melody was alive. You know what I mean? Like it it came, it, it it's almost like it existed, and I could. Uh, work against it or or work with it or something like that. And I think that's that, you know, one of the things that drew me to the idea of astrology was that that principle, which is one of the guiding lights in in my creative life, also seems like the way an ordered life kind of um, begins to look, you know, it begins to look like a melody where the moves that someone makes um, have a have a meaning and are sometimes surprising, you know, or, or sometimes just right in line and, and, and but it keeps life, uh, flowing in a, in a meaningful and interesting way. Um, so yeah, I guess that's not even a question. That's just sort of a response. Well, musicians do, I think have a special access point when it comes to astrology, because when astrologers are looking at aspects, which is the, the geometrical relationships between the planets that we see when the archetypes associated with those planets are activated. So the the meanings associated with the planets are activated. Mm. It's those geometrical connections that actually carry the same meaning as they would in terms of musical harmonies. Mm. So what we can see, for example, in the trine, which is 120 degree angle is very much resonant with say the third or um you know even in in an octave where uh we're hearing the same notes it's it's very much equivalent to the uh the conjunction where two planets are at the same place so it's the divisions of the string Mm. are the same as the divisions of the circle in astrology and okay. we use five or five major aspects. It's all based on Pythagorean number theory, which of yeah. course is relevant to music too. So there is something to the music of the spheres that it really is a kind of music. And 
I feel like in our current era where we don't have the same kind of perception of the cosmos as the ancients did, where they could, you know, look up at the night sky and they see Venus blazing like a diamond, just exquisitely beautiful, and would know Venus is the principle of beauty and love and aesthetics and desire and, and so forth, the goddess of love and beauty. Mm. We're looking at the red blazing of Mars and know that that symbolizes the warrior, violence, anger, uh, assertion, right. aggression, that there's that fiery heat to Mars. There's that capacity in ancient consciousness to look at each of the planets and perceive their meanings. We've lost that. Most yeah. of us can't even find the planets <laughs> in the sky. And I can't. <laughs> it's worth doing. And if you have a horizon accessible to you right now, you can see Venus as the evening star. Hmm. And it's, it's the brightest light that you will see just after sunset. Look to the West. And she is absolutely worth uh, paying homage to and, and seeing out there. But Interesting. Um, we, you know, we've, we've lost that capacity to see it. And something that I think astrology offers us is just in the same way as, you know, when we hear music just orally, we're just taking it in. We're kind of bathed in that sound. That's what that ancient perception is. Mm. Astrology is something more like reading the score. So we have to go back and learn how to read the score to then hear that music again. And astrology okay. shows us how to hear it again. Um, that's, that's, that's great. Why do you think the ancients uh, had more access to these kinds of, of uh, thoughts and intuitions and, and sensations? Like, cause I talked to um, another uh person named Sarah Jane's on the show and her whole thing is ancient Egypt. And, and we talked about how the ancient mind was just, um, just, just different. Like we wouldn't recognize the, the way that someone thought, but what is your impression of why, um, some of these, some of these things were so obvious to people in previous ages and, and not now. I know you already mentioned that the scientific revolution. Is there anything else there? Or Yeah, I am very much influenced by a variety of thinkers who work with the idea of the evolution of consciousness. And by evolution of consciousness, I don't mean a, a progression from like worse to better or less developed to more developed. By evolution, I just mean simply a, a change, a mutation through time, mm. so that something simply evolves through time. Um, you know, a, a shark, for example, has been in the same form for millennia, whereas, um, you know, some other maybe land mammal ha had to evolve much more through time. Mm. But there's no value differentiation between say the shark or the tiger, right. but they're different evolutionary trajectories. So that's what I mean by evolution. Um, and so the thinkers I'm informed by are people like Jean Gebser, um, who wrote a book called uh, The Ever-Present Origin, where he looks at different phases of consciousness, or one of the biggest influences on me has been Owen Barfield, who yeah. wrote about, you're familiar with Barfield, one of the great inklings. Yeah, yeah. 
Mm. Yeah, I was going to mention it because of, uh, okay. sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, uh, no, but uh, Mark Vernon is a person I've spoken to a couple of times now. And and he's uh, he wrote a book about Barfield, which was kind of my introduction to, to Barfield's thinking. And I loved it. Mm. The, inter- the evolution of consciousness. I mean, that book was focused around the significance of of Christ's presence in history but it's just so it's just so rich to think about uh yeah that whole topic is just so great so sorry I interrupted you there no that's wonderful um Mark Brennan is amazing his book A Secret History of Christianity is just it's a beautiful uh expression of Barfield and a very accessible one too yeah. so I I highly recommend it and so those are some thinkers I've been informed by in terms of that. Other evolutionary thinkers like Pierre Terre de Chardin or Carl Jung. Um, and then I've been very directly influenced uh, by my own father, Richard Tarnas, who's thought a lot about uh, the evolution of consciousness and brought that into his work. And the basic idea behind all of these theories is that Uh, an an earlier form of consciousness, this kind of ancient consciousness, had a more porous relationship to the world. And so the idea of an individual self uh, wasn't as present, that the boundary between who I am and what the world is, is, is fluid. And that I would experience myself outside of myself that moving through, say, the natural environment, there's a, a sense of, of meaning in the, the outer world that is just as much within me as without me and vice mm. versa. And so there would be an awareness, too, of the, the way the world speaks to us through mm. that form of consciousness. Yeah. And Barfield was able to trace this evolution of consciousness really beautifully through language. He has a wonderful book called Poetic Diction. And if you only read one book by Barfield, that's the one I would say to read, although Saving the Appearances is, they're like the alpha and the omega of um, Barfield's thought. But Poetic Diction is focused on how certain words were used differently through time and how those words then reflect the consciousness of the speaker at that time. Mm. And one of the examples he gives is the Latin word spiritus. Mm-hmm. And that word now we translate with several different meanings. We translate it to mean breath, but mm-hmm. also wind, and then okay. also spirit. Okay. And what Barfield recognized is that the ancient speaker of that word, the way they use the word in poetry, for example, that when they said spiritus, they actually meant all of those meanings together. Mm. And so when they say spiritus in reference, say, to the wind blowing, that's also the spirit moving. And it's the breath of life. And the breath of life, the wind that moves through our bodies that animates us is the spirit of our bodies. Mm. There is no separation in that meaning. Mm. And that language beautifully articulates um, these words are like fossils that actually encapsulate older forms of consciousness Mm. and over time those meanings came to split apart and in that splitting apart of the meanings what we're seeing happening in the evolution of human consciousness is a gradual withdrawal 
of participation in the outer world. Yeah. And so instead of feeling uh, fluid and porous between ourselves and the world and able to perceive the ensouled nature of the world surrounding us, we draw all of that soul into ourselves. Very mm. gradual process. It takes hundreds upon hundreds of years for this to occur. And it occurs in different ways in different cultures. Mm. Um, the, the lineage I'm most familiar with just simply because it is my own is like the Western philosophical tradition. But mm. I have to own, that's my own situated lineage. So I can't uh, speak to other lineages as well, but of right. course others could. And what we see within that particular lineage is this withdrawal of participation in the world where that sense of meaning then comes into the individual. And through time, what is forged is that individual autonomous self where we finally reach a point where we feel that, you know, we're having our own private thoughts, no one else can hear them or perceive them, who I am ends at the edge of my skin, and we are essentially uh, autonomous individuals. Mm. And this is an extraordinary achievement, becoming a self, becoming mm. a self that is separate from now an objective world. Mm. But there's a great sacrifice in that too because mm. we have taken all the meaning, all of the purpose, all of the soul from the world and brought it into our human selves mm. and left the world devoid of right. any of that meaning and purpose. So soul is something that we have and it's this fragile thing contained within ourselves rather than something we're participating in or something right. like that. Um, yeah, that, that's great. I mean, yeah, and I can hear uh, it's funny because I, I haven't read directly read Barfield, but you and Mark have, and I hear some of the same ideas coming out. I love that. I love the idea of the evolution of language. Um, I, I like, um, you know, I, I feel like um, that I resonate strongly with what you said about evolution, the evolution of consciousness, that it's not a, it's not a qualitative uh, gradual rise. And that's something I've said before is that we, um, we, I, 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 we think of evolution of the human species and the evolution of consciousness, meaning we go from, um, being cavemen to being, um, you know, beautiful creatures who all wear the same jumpsuit and have, um, large brains communicate telepathically. And that's what evolution looks like. And really it's much, it, it seems much messier and it seems like we reach these ages like we're in right now where just everyone is crying out um you know psychically uh for the next phase whatever the next phase of consciousness is whether it be kind of a, an inversion and an opening out again of uh from individuality out into some new kind of of connection um and participation um, and, and so I hear all of that and it's, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, again, not a question, just, um, just very, you know, uh, what you're saying is, is really resonating with me. I thought that I did have based on who you are and the work you've done as you were talking was, um, you were talking about this, the poorest nature of, of, of the ancient self with nature. And I kind of wonder if maybe, uh, as time has moved on, um, these, connections to the natural world actually get personified through story as things like fairies and and goblins is that a, is is that a uh, an an 
something that that you've um, considered just like the notion that, you know, on the face of it, it seems odd that we would want stories of things that don't, well, you may, you may believe in fairies and to be perfectly mm-hmm. honest, I wouldn't judge you if you were a person who believed in fairies. We don't know each other. But, um, you know, one one way you could look at fairies and goblins and, and monsters and, and, and things like that is that we have these intuitions of ourselves, of seeing aspects of ourselves in the natural world. And that's why nobody, you know, no child ever is read the the princess and the goblin, which I read to my children and go, what's the, go- the there's no such thing as goblins. You know, they know there aren't in a sense, mm-hmm. but, uh, or that they've never seen one, but there's mm-hmm. no question about what that is. And I wonder if that's an intuition we have based on, on that. Does that make sense? Am I talking it nonsense? Does make- <laughs> <laughs> you are not talking nonsense. And this is something that I've thought about a lot in terms of know when when fairy stories emerged for example just historically and how we seem to have this progression for example from myth to legend to fairy story to the novel mm. and oh i haven't heard that uh sequence before i like that myth legend fairy story novel okay continue and in in that progression it, it's a progression that i kind of just delineated looking at the stories from different eras that we come across and fairy stories in particular come in historically just as the scientific revolution is. Mm. So just as the world is starting to be scrubbed of our perception of fairies and elves and goblins and dwarves and dragons, they have to go somewhere. Right. So they go to the land of fairy story, but what Mm. is that land? We could call it by many names, but I want to draw on the the work of Carl Gustav Jung, the depth psychologist. They go to the unconscious. Now, what is the unconscious? It's just simply the part of the psyche that we can't see clearly into. They go Mm. into this realm where they're hard to perceive. And so as we scrub them from the external world, or as we withdraw our consciousness, as Maybe better way of putting it, not as we withdraw our consciousness, but as consciousness withdraws into the human being. Mm. And then we kind of take possession of these things. And then we say, oh, they're only imaginary. They're only made up. They're not real. But here mm. they are haunting our psyche right. in this unconscious realm. And so then they come, start coming forward as stories. Yeah. Right. And you know, why is it that myths tell the exact structure of the human psyche why is it that fairy tales illuminate our deepest psychological psychological patterns and complexes right i don't think it's just because the human being is making these things up i think that it's actually psyche is inherent to the world and Mm. in our withdrawal from the world and this kind of gathering up of psyche for our human selves only we stopped being able to perceive that as part of the natural world. And so it becomes separated out and we start articulating it instead in fairy story. And then the further it gets separated out, now we have completely isolated imaginal worlds that we can articulate then in the novel Mm. or in the great fantasy fiction. Mm. And it seems like, oh, that's not a real world, but it's a real world, not in a literal physical sense, but in an imaginal sense that we have access to that world through the psyche 
Yeah. And I feel we're in a time where like matter and psyche are seen as very separate. So of course you're not going to find a fairy out in the outer world because we don't have that kind of consciousness right mm. now. But go back several hundred years and we did. And there are still many places in the world that have that kind of consciousness. I mean, you can even get a glimpse of it. Go to Iceland. They mm. build their roads around the elves' homes, which are rocks. And there are certain people who have the capacity to see those beings because they have that different kind of participatory consciousness. Mm. So um, there are still pockets of this in you know, many different parts of the world, many different cultures where that kind yeah. of separation hasn't taken place yet. Mm. Their evolutionary traje trajectories have followed different paths, very interesting ones. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love this. I, I feel like this is the real shit, you know, like, uh, because, uh, I, I, I just, I think that as a person, I have a, an ongoing lifelong yearning for, uh, to, to see a fairy, to see an angel, you know, mm -hmm. like, uh, something, and I feel barred from it and, mm -hmm. but I never lose. I never lose the desire, you know, just about, mm -hmm. I mean, this is, I'm just being kind of real here, but like just about every night, uh, when mm -hmm. I go to bed, I, I think, uh, you know, I hope I see something really interesting in a dream or, or I hope, you know, between wake and sleep, I have a vision and it, you know, it, I don't, it, it's, it's quite interesting to me that it can be so long-term without mm -hmm. ever having had uh, a moment of genesis of it where this began or or a particular time when oh my goodness this crazy thing happened and so when people do have those stories i'm always like ah, you know i i feel this this sense of of jealousy you know i i um uh of that kind of thing because i'm i'm totally willing to 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 believe in the reality of it um i just it's it always remains in this um kind of removed state for me and mm. um yeah it it feels it yeah i don't know yeah it's, it's just uh, interesting sorry go ahead well what i would say to that is it's not the same kind of seeing as the way we're looking at one another with the mm. literal physical eyes it's a different kind of seeing and the the sight to cultivate is the perception of the imagination and it's the imagination that is able to see these things. Like when you read your children a story, do the images come up for you as you read that? You know, they may be blurry, kind of, you know, you're reading the story, but you kind of can picture the scene. Mm -hmm. That's actually the glimmerings of that kind of sight. Mm -hmm. We just don't, in the same way as I was saying before, that we don't have practices to cultivate intuition. Right. We also don't have practices to cultivate imagination but mm -hmm. we can it's like cultivating a practice of meditation yeah. but instead of emptying of the images you're focusing on the images mm. and being able yeah. to cultivate that instead might bring the kind of seeing you are seeking but it may not look like what you think you know it's not going to be oh you're out in the woods and poof there's a fairy yeah it, it's not quite like that right um but inside absolutely that is possible to perceive. Yeah. And and you're right. We don't have, um, there's, there's, there's a, almost like a disincentive to, uh, the intuition and the imagination 
that I find kind of disturbing. I find it especially mm -hmm. disturbing in uh, like religious traditions when mm -hmm. um, kind of uh, rigid uh, sort of almost mathematical theology comes in because, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that's where, that's where I was originally told, you know, angels, demons, all totally real. Um, and yet other, other messaging that I was given really bound me up, um, regarding, you know, uh, regarding those things. And it just, mm. yeah, I, I think I'm not alone in that where, um, you know, the edges of my, well, you, you talked about the, you know, you know, the subconscious, the edges of my subconscious, I feel like I'm just always seeing, um, shapes through it and 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 often they can come in into my conscious mind uh often most most often when they're sort of more on the philosophical intellectual conceptual side but mm -hmm. but they come in as images um yeah. that's what i find um mm -hmm. you know um you'll have a flash of of an image that you then have to turn into words so i guess that's the most that's the most magical uh thing and it's one of the reasons that i do this podcast is because uh talking to other people such as yourself who are uh, kind of a channel to another mm -hmm. world um you, you know you know brings those images in as you're speaking i'm trying to be really um mm -hmm. sensitive to to them um mm -hmm. but uh yeah i guess so that's my little version of of seeing fairies i suppose is yeah. the is the thoughts i have in response to um mm -hmm. to other people's ideas. Um, you're probably yeah. familiar with that C.S. Lewis um, in The Magician's Nephew. I can't remember which one it is, where um, there's the world, the little liminal world of the pools. Yes, it is in. The Magician's Nephew. <laughs> Magician's Nephew, yeah. Um, and that that has always, that has always struck me. Even, I feel like even for, as a kid, as being true on some weird level like that place seemed real kind of like the garden of eden how um you know i can become obsessed with the story and the resonance of the garden of eden or something i i uh even though i i don't, I don't even care if it was a real place in a way so mm -hmm. uh and so things like astrology i mean i don't want to be guilty of being a tourist um which i think i am often guilty of uh, of being, you know, of dipping into these worlds, especially through things like these conversations. Uh, but, but it is, it's, it's always affirming and encouraging uh, to me to know that there are people really going into these things, you know, like living life day to day in these worlds and, and plumbing uh, the wisdom. Cause there's always wisdom there, you know, like anything that sustains, and now I'm on a rant, but anything that sustains human interest, uh, over time it, it to me it just has to be given uh, attention and it has to be given some kind of deference um, mm -hmm. because um you know reality presents itself more as uh a, a, a land of of pools of different uh realities than as a a climb a steady climb up a pyramid to a to a pinnacle of mm -hmm. final knowledge and i think that pinnacle of final knowledge is the thing that maybe is really uh, messing with us mm -hmm. as as a species some people thinking that we already are almost at the top of it and you know something like astrology would come in or something like religion would come in and they would be like 
why are you still on that? You know, like we're almost, we're almost there. Like we almost don't need this stuff anymore. So, mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I, I'm really just ranting now. I feel like it's so much more of rather than being that climb toward that pinnacle, you know, that someday scientifically we will know everything and we will be able to predict concretely, absolutely, um, you know, every movement within the cosmos. And of course, it was 100, almost 100 years ago that the quantum physics overturned that possibility anyway, although mm. we haven't largely integrated that into our scientific worldview because quantum physics is extremely hard to understand. Yeah. Um, but that I see it instead of just this uh, gradual climb of knowledge, it's rather um, these paradigms that undergo a death rebirth experience. And that happens again and again and again, where new information comes in and it overturns the old world. Mm. And I feel like we are in so many ways in one of those moments right now where there, there's such a sense of fragmentation and chaos and polarity and disagreement because the old world is crumbling. And in that chaos, a new world is coming through. Mm. And I do think it is one that is more uh, interconnected in the sense that we used to be with a participation with the world, but it's also one that reflects the, this evolutionary trajectory of uh, the development, the forging mm. of that autonomous self, so that we human beings can be in relationship, in a responsible relationship to the world around us, mm. not just being fluid, porous beings who are a part of the sway and flow of the world, but also individuals who mm. can then come back into a kind of participatory, participatory relationship. Yeah. And astrology, I would say, is one of many avenues for such a reconnection. But mm. even as I you know, live my life within that particular astrological worldview, I also recognize that this too will be a paradigm that comes and goes. Mm. And, you know, it, usually paradigms shift over hundreds of years. So this isn't something that I'm seeing, you know, within my lifetime, yeah. but recognizing that all the work that I'm putting into better illuminating, better understanding a particular worldview that it too isn't eternal, that mm. at some point that also will feel constricting and need to die in order for some other rebirth of our human relationship to the world to come through. Well, that's so interesting. And I love the humility of that. And I, I actually have a yearning for that within the, the Christian tradition that I mm. am still, um, I, you know, I, I'm still involved in, I mean, it's, it really is the language of my brain. And, and, and in, I, I said the other day, like I was having a conversation with some people, uh, fellow heretics who were, who were saying that basically, uh, it, it, Christendom is over. And, and we were glad of that, 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 mm -hmm. it, that there's some, there's something in, in saying, I'm giving myself to this, I'm, you know, there, and, and I see something, um, I see a path through reality in, in, from this, and yet it won't always, you know, it, you know, it, it won't always need to, to be necessarily. Mm -hmm. And that, that's something I think is actually, 
paradoxically, it kind of strengthens what you do now. It's mm -hmm. kind of like um, if you think of, of relations, romantic relationships, I talk with my wife about this all the time because there's this notion of, um, of kind of the permanence of, you know, your bond with someone else. And it almost becomes this restrictive thing where it's like, um, you have drawn love out of me. Uh, and this, um, you know, uh, this marriage is some eternal, um, immutable thing. And, it, and there's almost a constriction there. Whereas I'm not, by the way, I'm not, I'm not suggesting everybody should, you know, Welsh on their marriage commitments, mm -hmm. but there's something about being like, Hey, we're building, we're building something right now. That's based on right now. That's based on you and me at this time. And it's important for us to see each other, um, and, and to not put each other into, um, mm -hmm. the husband wife category in some kind of existential, um, way that goes down to your, to your, um, cells or something um and and that it this is something we're participating in and i love how you're saying that about um about astrology you know someday it may not be be necessary um or it just might it might naturally die a death um and and that's that's a great perspective another image that came to my mind as you were speaking is i love this idea and i've talked with a, a guy named tim freak about this um mm. who he um talks about the individual and then becoming a individual an individual that is um uh fully uh recognizing their place within a collective whole um but uh, i saw um a kind of an image of a of a mirror where uh, i think maybe evolutionarily maybe consciously we're approaching a mirror where where we will now be looking um like you you were saying that we used to be connected with nature in a, in kind of a a porous way and kind of a holistic way where we saw ourselves as part of a whole then we've individuated and then um there's this this like um through the looking glass where mm -hmm. now we are recognizing ourselves as part of a massive whole but also using our autonomy as a as a uh, as a gift and, and, and as a tool to um to protect and to augment this world or maybe augment might might not be the right word but uh um Hey buddy, I'm on, I'm doing a podcast. Love you. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Um, oh, sorry. My kids just came. Um, so anyway, um, th this mirror. Okay. Sorry. I lost my train of thought. Okay. Come here, sweetie. This is Becca. Hi. And this is Delia. Hi Delia. It's lovely to and meet you. Aubrey. Hi says, Aubrey. Lovely to meet you. They can't hear you. Oh. Okay. <laughs> okay. And I need to just finish up talking with, with Becca for a bit. Okay. Bye bye, um, love you. Okay, so anyway, sorry, I was on I was on this thing about this this mirror. Oh yeah, I was I was thinking it, one of the the tensions, and we're kind of off ast astrology a little bit now, but one of the the tensions that's so hard for people to accept in the human um, in in human history is that this beautiful emergence into autonomous and yet connected um, consciousness brought with it this cat catastrophic uh all of these catastrophic things like where we've kind of reached the full expression of different kinds of of uh, autonomy and different expressions of autonomy that mm -hmm. have you know in many ways damaged uh our environment damaged ourselves you know and the, and you cannot withdraw consciousness into yourself with no 
consequences you know mm-hmm. so on the one hand you may be for the first time really onto the project of understanding individual consciousness and really working on that with people like jung you know who never you know jung could never have been if not for this movement towards mm-hmm. individual consciousness and individual autonomy and you know and um and you see you know freud's um you know, different expression, different shade and different angle on, on some of the same ideas. And then they're carried on. And, um, so yeah, it's quite, it's quite an interesting thing. I mean, this, this age of, uh, apocalypse or whatever mm-hmm. is so messy. Um, mm-hmm. and yet I like this, I like this hopeful view. I mean, it may not make, it may not bring hope to people in their specific lives right this minute, but it's, it's interesting to think that it is working towards, uh, you know, a, a reintegration. And I think about even things like, man, I'm ranting today. You're just sending me off on all these things. <laughs> but I think about things like, you know, socialism and how it's, you know, seen as this thing that can just never work. We cannot share and and all of that kind of thing. And, and it's like, uh, thank you. Um, w- you know, we cannot share with each other and it's just impossible. Um, and it's actually to the point of being evil to try mm-hmm. to suggest it and that right. kind of thing. And it's like, and, and my, my mind says, sure, I wouldn't vote tomorrow to become a socialist um, nation. I mean, I, I live in Canada. We're slightly more socialist than other places, but mm-hmm. you know, the full fledged version of socialism, I don't know. But at the same time, that intuition, that long-term vision, it, it never leaves the subconscious where it's like, um, you know we are connected and we need to we need to reevaluate that and it's ridiculous that somebody um you know that that not everybody has what they need to live i don't know mm-hmm. uh, does this does all of this mean anything to you we definitely need to come back into that balance between the individual and the the relational like the the part and the whole basically and we have been moving more and more into that kind of consciousness of the part and are being now forced to reckon with that that part is interconnected with a greater whole and the ecological uh, crisis is the very direct reminder of that in this moment of chaos that we're in you 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 said um, earlier that this idea that like Christendom is over and that one of the things Christianity speaks to so beautifully because it's brought it into historical form is the great death rebirth mystery. Yeah. And that that is at the core of that experience. And now here we are at this threshold moment. And I think we felt the, the, the first really clear birth pangs last year with the coronavirus. That was a Mm. big contraction. Mm. Contraction in the sense of a major uh, loss and setback. So many people um, who are harmed in so many ways, whether it was um, literally through, through death or through suffering or loss of work or loss of housing security. So, So much of a contraction. But that word contraction, we also can recognize and the labor contraction of birth. And maybe at some large planetary scale, 
we are undergoing that death rebirth mystery again that's told in christianity that's told in so many myths of the dying and reborn god mm. and now here we are experiencing a myth yet again from the inside and yeah. like any true uh death experience the outcome has to be uncertain yeah and so we don't know how the story will end, but mm. the best we can do is to continue moving through it and find our connections within that process. Even if we're in a moment of planetary hospice, what would we want to do with that time? How would mm. we want to spend it? And I feel that you know, being in right relationship with those I am closest to, with myself, with my body, with the body of the earth. Those are the ways I would want to spend those hospice moments, just in the same way that I would hope to spend my own hospice moments at the mm. inevitable ending of my individual part life. So right. maybe we're still caught in that great uh, Christian story that is more than a Christian story too, because yeah we all go through that death rebirth experience. I, th I think that that, that is, that's my intuition. And so I, I, uh, I, I agree with that. And I like the way in which uh, on a conceptual level, cause I haven't, don't have great experience with it, but I like the way that astrology could have that personal, that level of increasing personal understanding, uh, in combination with, um, an acknowledgement of actually a much vaster, uh, whole, a much larger into integration than even, you know, I mean, I think arguably astrology is the most large scale um, integrate integrative uh, concept mm -hmm. uh, of the universe. And it really hints at things like, um, you know, like a massive um, consciousness, mm -hmm. you know, of, of all things and that kind of thing, because it's so, it's so big. So on the one mm -hmm. hand, I mean, you've obviously found that it is revelatory in your life and in the lives of of others in self-understanding, especially when um, practiced as kind of an ongoing long form practice where it's not like uh, maybe just one reading and 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 you get some advice on a you know business deal or something, but more like an ongoing connection and even just thinking in, in terms that large, I, I definitely feel like that that will have a positive effect for people. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> um, go ahead. I was just going to say it, it definitely can have that, uh, that interconnecting effect because when we see our inmost experiences mirrored by the movements of our solar system, then we do recognize that on the one hand, we small individuals are part of something so much larger. And yet that much larger scope is also focused in on each one of us. Mm. And that the astrological correlations we see are, they're so nuanced and subtle and poetic and open to our own personal engagement and participation that, um, you know, for we didn't even go into that, like, I don't see the, the planets as by any means physically causing these correlations. It's mm. more like um, a great synchronicity. And right. it's an ongoing, continuous synchronicity where the positions of the planets are more like the hands of a clock. 
And right. even as the clock says, you know, that it's um, 5 p.m., it's not causing it to be 5 p.m. It's actually uh, just correlating with that. The mm. planets, too, they're correlating with the quality of time of that moment. And right. so it, it's just extraordinary to see how we're all kind of part of this larger moving ongoing synchronicity. You could almost uh, do a reverse because I read that same idea. Um, I read that in in some, the thing you sent me of your yeah. father's uh, the introduction, uh, and uh, I, I like that because it's not so like it's not really superstitious at all. It's more like um, uh, yeah, it's more like seeing seeing harmonies and dissonances, uh, mm-hmm. large ones reflected in small ones, um, and you could almost look. At, you could almost go the other way and look just at what's going on in human society and and say that that was affecting the the movements of the planet mm-hmm. or not that or you could almost maybe say what was going on in the movements of the planets from looking at human beings like it's sort of like um yeah as above mm-hmm. so below kind of thing which definitely it's fascinating so we're at an hour and i feel like it might be as much as i could go on and on i don't i don't want to um push people uh, t- too far, but uh, where would you recommend people go to find out more um, about, about this, about well, astrology, uh, archetypal astrology? The, the place that I would definitely recommend starting, if you feel like taking on a, a hefty size book, and I'm speaking as a second generation astrologer here, my um, father, Richard Tarnas, wrote a book called Cosmos and Psyche, and the subtitle is Intimations of a New Worldview. And that book is written for the, um, it is written for someone who is ready to be initiated into an astrological perspective, but may not know anything yet. Hmm. And it's a really wonderful introduction to the realm of astrology, to the basics of it, and also to seeing correlations between the movements of the planets and uh, different themes throughout uh, human history. So it's a kind of work of cultural history, but using astrology as the framework. So I would highly recommend starting there. And anyone who wants to delve deeper, I the best way to get into astrology is to get a reading. I actually recommend getting readings from multiple good astrologers so that mm. you can get a variety of perspectives. People come in using different techniques, different styles, and it can be really helpful to get multiple lenses on your birth okay. chart. But getting to know your own birth chart, I think is always the best way into understanding mm. the, the planetary principles because it's um, it really can give you a personal relationship to it. And if you want to go deeper, then you can you know start learning astrology. You can start exploring it through the charts of other people. Astrology is one of those things that, yes, you can learn a lot of it from books, and there's great books out there. There's extraordinary podcasts out there like Chris Brennan's Astrology Podcast, but it's something that I think really is worth learning from a teacher or in community or with others yeah. be- because you need that kind of context. And I actually right. did recently put out um, an introductory course on archetypal astrology. Um, it's through the Academy of Oracle Arts, and it's just a simple six-part course okay. that lays out the basics of how to do astrology. Um, there's a, a book list 
of, of other texts that can be helpful to draw on, like Rob Hand's Planets in Transit, Sue Tompkins' um, Aspects in Astrology, um, and, and many other books that can be really supportive in learning astrology. So, okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, you clearly are are uh, aware of a, a large breadth of uh, of writing and stuff on on the subject. So that's awesome, and uh, and yeah, I will look into some of that. That your your father's book sounds really interesting to me. I hope it's on mm. audiobook because that's usually how I would take it in. Do you know if it is? I think it just got made into an audiobook. Oh, nice. um, so I would say look into it. Uh, it it might have it might not be out yet. I'm actually not totally sure. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well. No. No problem. You don't need to speak yeah. to that uh, uh, um, if you don't know for sure. But um, okay. Well, it's been a real pleasure uh, talking mm-hmm. to you. It's been great. I'm sorry for all the ranting that I oh, it's did. Wonderful. <laughs> uh, the yeah, I tend to rant a varying amount based on uh, on just how much the person I'm speaking to, how much their ideas bring something in from the subconscious mm. that kind of uh, needs to be uh, needs to be spoken, or maybe it doesn't. Who knows? But anyway, I appreciate <laughs> totally. that. My and pleasure. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping uh, maybe someday we can speak again because uh, I would love to talk about. Um, go into um, uh, fictional fairy stories and that kind of thing a, a little deeper in Tolkien and, and, and that kind of thing. Cause I know you've written a book on that. We didn't even, yeah. we barely touched it, but anyway, mm. um, that said, thank you and have a great rest of your evening. Mm. Thank you as well. I hope you have a beautiful evening and weekend. You too. Okay. I'll cut it there. And